Hello, my name's Charlie Winston and this is my podcast called As We Are, which is inspired by my most recent album, As I Am. It's discussions with people who interest me and inspire me. Some of those people you may know, but others you may never have heard of. But that's not the point, you see, because I'm simply interested in people. So, without further ado, I shall let you discover this episode. Take me as I am. This episode is with an old school friend of mine called Johnny Vaughan. Recently, I went back to England for a short vacation and we got together and asked if he would do this podcast with me as he has such an interesting story to tell. In the last 10 years, he has lived in Lelongwe, Malawi, um, with his partner Kate, they have single-handedly changed legislations around trafficking of endangered animals and they've done a huge amount to enforce new laws and educational projects uh, for the general wildlife and environment out there. He is the CEO of the Lelongwe Wildlife Trust, of which I'm very proud to call myself an ambassador and he has a very interesting story to tell about his work out there in the last 10 years. Unfortunately, there are certain things we couldn't talk about due to it be still being uh, a bit sensitive, um, but there's still plenty in here that is worth listening to. So here's my conversation with Johnny Vaughan. So here we are in your in your house in England, and uh, we're sitting with the fire, which is quite nice because it brings quite a nice sound in my in our ears. But um, we've known each other for I think about twenty five, twenty thirty years. Yeah, thirty years probably. That's a long time. So it's like you're one of my oldest mates, I'd say, since high school at least. And um, we spent a lot of time sitting around in front of fires, but I drinking tea, drinking tea, drinking a lot of in, yeah English tea, not 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 <laughs> not your tea zans, <laughs> <laughs> but um, and and spending a lot of time in pubs, chatting away, and a lot of time on the beach, just sort of looking at mm. the sea. I think we I think you could say it's it's fair fair to say that we spent a lot of our Teenage, yeah. teenage years doing that on boats little sailboats yeah right a few little road trips thrown in yeah it's true yeah that's some funny ones um, but then well, then we went our own ways really and, and you although we, we stayed in touch very intermittently you have you you know at some point you left England like I've left England now mm and you went to Africa. But you started off going to Africa by doing, in fact, what, what was the real, the original reason you went? Was it to do the, the um, guiding? For yeah, it's kind of, it was kind of guiding. Um, it was to, after graduating in, with ecology, to go, the first sort of environmental job I could get was over in Swaziland doing, um, so expedition leading, setting up ecological projects for for local and international students, and then taking them after sort of the project phase finished, doing some basic research or things like that, taking them on expeditions, mountaineering or diving in Mozambique and traveling through southern African countries. Yeah, right. Yeah. Was it for a company? Or? 
That was for a company, and the research part was for some of the local organisations. Was it Quest? Is that what it was called? Yeah, it was called... Um, the expedition company was called Quest Quest Overseas, yeah. But I think I don't think they exist anymore. Really? Mm. So did you... Then you... Then you I mean, you were going to different countries all over South Africa. South, not South Africa. Southern, South yeah. of Africa. Southern Africa, yeah. Southern um, yeah, several. So Swaziland, um, uh, Botswana, Mozambique, um, uh, and Zambia mainly. And why? Why did you decide that was the path to take at that point in time? Well, I mean, to be honest when you study ecology you haven't got a huge number of great career prospects so you need to try and if you're trying to earn a, a living out of the environment you know or something that you're passionate about in that regards it's quite challenging so the main attraction was the fact that it was um you know a paid job doing the conservation work the first part of it right. the second part i kind of dreaded because you know what was i had to go and do my summer mountain leadership and leadership things which i didn't come that it wasn't exactly you know, a renowned mountain, mountaineer, but um, had to learn a lot of skills that I was unfamiliar with and then be responsible for a bunch of, you know, 18 to 20-year-olds. Um, for how long? About 12 weeks. And take them wow. into wilderness areas and take them diving and things like that. I mean, there were some cool things, like learning all my diving qualifications on the back of it was great. But you, you didn't like you, you, that would terrified you more to have to be responsible for those people. The thought of it at the beginning. So I, I certainly didn't go for that that um that job because of that component but obviously to the company that was the attraction to it was that was probably the attractive part to the kids that once they do their six to eight weeks project work you know the surveys and the and the community work and things like that um i'm sure they all wanted to contribute something back um but i'm also pretty sure that they were much more excited about going diving you know for man you know and off Tofu Beach or something like that in Mozambique or looking at Victoria Falls or going on safari in Botswana. Yeah, same great big animals. Wild camp. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. So that was a bit that they obviously were able to make, I suppose, their the company was able to make their money from. Mm. Um, and so you had an obligation to do that part as well. And that was a part in the end that I, I really loved as well because the kids were actually great, really? fun. Yeah. Um, I was probably quite a reckless leader actually but we got away with it and we all got on <laughs> <laughs> but you realised at one point you actually wanted to stay in in an African uh, town an African uh, country and and you chose you chose to stay yeah well the, f well, the first time I um, I ever went to an African country an East African country um, it was Tanzania when I was still at university and Kate my partner had um encouraged me to enter some Earthwatch um, fellowship award thing um, and put this application into the Earthwatch Institute, which is a sort of environmental charity, which at the time was attached, I think, briefly with Oxford. I might be wrong, or Cambridge. I should know that, one or two. can't remember. It doesn't matter. And, um, and they had various projects around the world, including some in, in, in parts of Africa, where renowned researchers and scientists were, were running long-term projects and you normally had to pay to go on that but if you got a scholarship or you won this fellowship then a few people got to go over there and um for free 
and go and spend time. So I won one. I picked um, uh, a project in the eastern Isambara Mountains in Tanzania up on the, uh, where we were looking at fragmented rainforests and, and then certain bird species, um, interior bird species and things. But it was beautiful, it was sort of fragmented by the tea estates, but the, the tea estates themselves... What's the tea estates? Where, where, obviously where, where, where people grow tea. And oh, tea? Oh, tea, right. yeah. So um, there'd been a lot of deforestation to plant the tea. Um, but, so ecologically it's a bad thing, but the, the backdrops of that, where you have mountains with rainforest on and then tea estates in between and these sort of windy... Um, undulating roads, red, red, red with the with, with the the soils were you know up in the mountains was was beautiful. So it was a really um, lovely place to to start. It was very friendly, very rural, remote, so remote. I remember having to make a a phone call home once, and there was one phone in the entire sort of I don't know thirty mile radius, and he went into this little old run down post office you know um mud brick etc and went on to one of those they actually had to ring through and and, and use the switchboards wow. you know to get back Real. so um that was kind of cool That's but great. yeah because of the friendliness and because of the the imagery and the vivid colors and the and the, the you know the exotic tropical environments that, that um that we experienced and after that went on a little holiday down to um, Zanzibar and, and all that exotica that you feel when you land on an island like that, it kind of got under your under your skin. Yeah. And uh, and so the drawback to to a part of Africa was already made even before I left university. Really, the draw to go back, I should yeah. say. And obviously, there's it's the continent where there's megafauna and these exciting giant animals that don't really exist anywhere else. Yeah, which is part of what you studied and what what is what you're passionate about. Right? Yeah, to a degree, I was, funny enough, um, what is your much mind? more passionate about plants, very geeky, and uh, no, you, I know you told me that. Yeah, and uh, in the UK at least, uh, probably not that. I was I was a pretty good botanist at the time. I can and I can still do botanical surveys, but I just loved. Basically, came from when I was a kid growing up, where we grew up in the South World, right in that beautiful sort of especially over conservation, which is down on the Blythe estuaries and all those things, just laying down in amongst all the vegetation and looking up at the skies and hearing all the nature around you. And that kind of being in, in amongst all those plants, I think, got, got in. And then the next logical step was to try and understand them, not to record them, so to speak, but to um, to to try and understand something, to try and... I suppose protect it and, and know what it needs and things like that. Yeah, you know, how to how to ensure it survives. That really blew me away when when we were in um, when we were in Malawi together, and you were telling me about how how kind of it, it was exciting to be there with all the fauna and plant life. That, but there's still a lot that's that's actually been lost. A lot of um, and and especially you told me about how in England, we've lost so much. Uh, like kind of mosses and and certain plants and certain certain is that, is that that's true right yeah I remember you telling me that it really blew me away like how in so many uh, in so many, over over a certain period of time with all the pollution that we've got we've lost a lot of kind of yeah I mean in Malawi issues are slightly different I mean it's uh yeah there's a lot it's got a, 
terrible deforestation rate, extreme deforestation rate. It's not really getting any better. Um, and that's largely driven, you know, from um, development and business and things. Um, and the fact that there's few alternatives for for um, fuel. Um, in the UK, obviously, you know, many, you know, a longer, a much longer time period ago, a lot of those forests and things were cleared, obviously, for different reasons, whether it was boat building or... or support for the war agriculture all that sort of stuff but we lost a huge amount of um of botanical and uh, uh flora and flora fauna during in between the wars and, and after the wars for, for that and um and since then we've lost a lot more or as much you know in terms of modern agriculture and pesticides and herbicides and yeah. even when we were kids around this area in Suffolk when you drive around in the night with the lights on when dad was driving or something you'd, you'd have to wipe the windscreen and all the moths would be splattered all over the screens and you, that doesn't happen at all no. there's no God. there's no insect life and there's no you know winter flocks on the stubble fields because there's no stubble left anymore you know there's, there's, so there's winter wheat like birds all, oh, the, all the farmland flocks birds, birds flocks oh. of birds the starlings that used to appear on all the all the all the telegraph line tele telephone lines, you know, in the hundreds and thousands, and now you know, yeah. a, a tiny all that stuff. So there's been a dramatic loss of of uh, in numbers and to a large extent diversity of species. If you're talking about mosses, I think maybe referring to lichens and things like that, those lower plants and bryophytes that get impact. Sorry, you, you lost me there. Lichens is like a crusty. It looks like a crusty. Uh, moss I suppose is the okay. best way to describe it but they grow on trees and they're very affected by air pollution so in industrial areas particularly in the 70s they realised a, a dramatic loss in diversity of, of, of lichens which uh, and um, and since air pollution has improved slightly in places these these species are coming back so that makes me think of the, one of my songs All That We Are when I'm talking about I'm sort of looking at the world from this ecological standpoint a little bit and the opening line is um, um, looking out upon horizons I see I see buildings for miles and miles and you know just sort of questioning where we're we are at as humanity uh, what's your viewpoint on that how humanity's footprint on on the world and how you feel about it coming from that perspective um, well like most environmentalists, I suppose, I, I wouldn't say it's looking rosy right now. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's something that we have to to always try and motivate ourselves because often we feel that we're, you know, you, you, you put all this effort in and you've got this passion and desire and sometimes, you know, you get very emotion, emotional about it, uh, and it and you don't necessarily have the control to, to change things. But at the same time, I, you know... I do see some hope and, and in the worst case scenario out of a disaster there will be a shift in probably general mindset of the importance of how um, urgent the situation is and how life-supporting natural systems are and potentially that disaster um, and the tragedies that it, it, it instigates on many um, may then actually end up being the Catalyst. The shift, the catalyst that we need for change. Mm. I mean, we saw some of that with COVID, didn't we? And the changes yeah. in behaviour, and and then very quickly you ended up with whales back on shipping lanes, and yeah. all those, all the things that were sort of lost, and and, and re, 
you know so there's that so there's also the, the fact that there are lots of amazing people out there yeah. and a lot of youngsters that are coming through that are super passionate about these things and and are very vocal and um do you come across a lot of people like that yeah we do i mean um and a lot of people interested to, to join in our work and there's some really inspiring people and organizations and things um we should just talk a little bit, bit like fast forward a little bit as to where where you are at now from where you started off by bit your time in africa like because then from doing that stuff um yeah okay if we open that door this cat is going to go out <laughs> and then he won't bother you unless why? you're okay yeah he can't get out to his cat flap okay. <laughs> <I> was... <laughs> okay, on. yeah so we should just let's just need to back to just fast forward a little bit your your life to where you're at now from where you because then you settled in malawi and then you um I don't know how it came about, but you said, and you 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 are now the you know CEO of the Lilongwe Wildlife Reserve or Trust. Trust, trust. the Lilongwe Wildlife Trust is a bit of a tongue twister, isn't it? Yeah, Lilongwe, capital of LWT. Yeah, LWT. And um and and so how did you get to that point from being a a guide? Uh, well, I mean, in large part thanks to my partner Kate, really, because um. We were at the point we were living in London, actually, in between. Um, I was actually, I came back from from working on contracts and things over in Southern Africa and um, started a master's at King's College and quit, um, thankfully. Um, it was extremely boring. And um, and then ended up working in a, in a, as an ecologist for... Um, a consultancy but use that time to then do a part-time master's in very geeky subjects like botany and studying dormice and things like that but um during that time we realized as much as it was fun in london that it, it wasn't a forever place for us and um uh so we started looking you know i think four or five years we we're like we need to do something else and we started looking and i'd always wanted to go back to malawi um why well, I'd heard, it was just a beautiful place, extremely friendly people, stunning landscapes. And um, yeah, there's something, I mean, you've been to Malawi, I yeah, mean, and, and it immediately impacts on you how the warm heart of Africa is the cliche, but it really is a lovely, welcoming place for yeah. travellers and tourists and, and other people, you know. Um, and uh, so that was the primary objective to try and see if we can go to Malawi, but we didn't just want to go and, you know, go traveling and grow a load of braids and things and bum around so we were trying to go there and, and see if we could contribute in a way or, or, or work and and luckily um kate through some of her contacts um with uh, a wildlife ngo in the uk um was offered the opportunity to go and help design help help this what we were told is a uh, you know a stalling wildlife sanctuary rescue center in, in the long way um with some you know with, with a bit of a business plan and marketing plan and things like that and so that felt like as good as place as any to start so uh, we went over there on the, on that premise for, and we were going to go there for three months and um cut a long story short people the leadership in that organization changed um we didn't help with them out i promise but we we, then, we didn't what? we didn't elbow them out but we ended yeah. up 
sort of taking over and there's a sto- longer story about that but and and then three months turned into 12 years yeah. living in Malawi and um and uh yeah now although in the UK we're still permanent residents and travel backwards and forwards yeah and you, you and you noticed at one point that it was there was more to be done than just taking care of the actual trust itself yeah well when when we started in at the Longwe Wildlife Trust it was a, a single project or half finished single project which was Malawi's only and it still is only and, and fully accredited sort of wildlife rescue centre so you know um, primates like monkeys and baboons and you know serval cats and all sorts of animals even a baby elephant once but you know would come in um, with, they were injured or they were orphaned animals and, and they need to be rescued and rehabilitated and, and then in time try to return them back into the wild into protected areas and things um, when we went over there there wasn't really any facilities at the sanctuary and so the orphan care centre and the vet centre was our house so we had several cats in the lounge and a diker in the bathroom and what's a diker? Uh, like a small antelope Okay. and uh, you know there were operations happening on the kitchen table to try and you know save injured monkeys and things it was kind of crazy but so the first objective was to try and work with um you know with the amazing staff that that we um we inherited i suppose and the board of trustees that helped oversee it and set it up in the first place in around 2007 i think it was and we arrived early 2009 or 2008 something like that um and um was to was to finish that facility so get all the enclosures done, build a vet clinic, get some kind of financial sustainability and core income in so it could sustain itself, um, build education centres, you know, um, and make it into one of Africa's best wildlife centres, which I have proudly say it is today. You know, really? It yeah, it's one of the only fully accredited um, rescue centres by GFAS, which is Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries. Okay, and that was, that, was, was that your, uh, like objective that you made together you and yeah well that was the primary objective because it was the basis on which you could launch the rest of it so obviously with a with a sanctuary or a rescue center the animals that are coming in there are in when you it's not difficult to realize that they're coming in as victims of some form of wildlife crime and if you're gonna the objective of any rescue center or sanctuary is to have no animals obviously Mm. because then you're doing a job you don't really want any animals or wildlife in there because then you've solved the problem, haven't you? Yeah. But if animals keep coming in, um, then okay, the sanctuary is very busy, the rescue centre is very busy, but then you've got a big problem in the country because why these animals keep coming in? Why do they need to be confiscated by government? Why do they, you know, why are people, why are they being surrendered? And so, it, it didn't take a genius to realise that we needed to 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 move on from being this reactive one project rescue facility. Um, to try and actually to try and understand the drivers and the root causes yeah. of it, and that that led to us really understanding that we had to address policy and, and legislation connected to the protection of wildlife, and really try and tackle wildlife crime. And so that started off with illegal pet trade and primates, but an information that came from that ultimately led to um, information on other sort of international trafficking um, components like the trade in ivory or rhino horns and pangolins and things like that. And so organically we ended up working with government partners who were uh, willing and proactive and progressive enough 
um, to to try and tackle those more serious crimes. How like, just give me an idea of how bad it is, or the most common things, or you'd find that you'd see like animals, the kind of the kind of ways in which they'd be either abused or maltreated, or and so how, in terms of the, the most common. The, I mean, unfortunately, in terms of you know, the rhino and, and, and elephants, the ivory trade, those animals are obviously dead and they're, they're byproducts that are being sold. But in terms of the live animal trade, which is often pet trade, although pangolins are, are uh, the most trafficked mammal, I think, in the world, and certainly out of Africa. What are they, what are they trafficking them for? Uh, they're trafficking them for, um, well, sometimes meat but the meat is often consumed at the the source country but they're trafficking the scales uh, primarily for um, uh, a couple of things but it's meant to have particularly in um, Asian cultures is meant to have a beautifying effect on the skin to scrape okay. your skin with pangolin scales and they also make them into jewelry and it's a, it's a, like a high status Mm. Um, artifact that you can wear and, and make into something. So, all ornamental purposes and, and I suppose purposes of beauty and vanity and things like that. Yeah. Right. Um, so, there is obviously some Chinese or traditional medicine components as well to pangolin. Um, but yeah, so that so the live animal trade means that obviously animals inevitably are, treat, are, are kept in, in, in utterly deplorable conditions. You know, yeah. we've had primates that are chained around a neck and skinny and, you know, cuts everywhere and totally malnutritioned and have got stereotypical repetitive behaviours where they, you know, they can't interact. They might, I don't know. I mean... I remember when I came to the uh, the trust... In Malawi, and I met Bella, the tiger, who you'd rescued from somewhere. It was a lion, yeah, no sorry, tiger. Sorry, sorry, yeah. lion, yeah, a female lion, yeah. Yeah. Uh, rescued from somewhere in... Um, so that, that was before my time, yeah, yeah so those... She um, was, like, she yeah. was a, a rescue that was coordinated um, by one of our original um, supporters of the sanctuary, which was the Born Free Foundation, who was actually the organisation that was connected to Kate. Um, and it was supported through... Um, funding to them by uh, a family called the Olsons who um, still support us very generously today um, but though those international rescues that she came from a Romanian zoo awful conditions and was then rehomed to to Africa I suppose uh, yeah. but that was very much before a few years before our time to be honest, they uh, uh, gorgeous animals, amazing that we did that. But one of the things that we decided to do after we took over, Kate and I, was basically to try and ensure that that rescue facility and that sanctuary space was kept available for, you know, Malawian wildlife yeah, and, and animals rather than. So we kind of have a change of tact in time. So Bella, when she she passed away, very old age, was an amazing animal. I mean, my son used to love going up and you know interacting with her. Um, yeah, it's beautiful. But she had loads of cigarette stubs in her. Oh, back in Romania, yeah, awful. Yeah, yeah they were stubbed one out, eye. one eye. You know, things thrown at her. You know, all that sort of stuff. But that that also happens in Malawi. With animals that are chained yeah. and tethered. And I remember one baboon was so skinny that you, I could literally put my my hand, thumb to finger, almost round its round its stomach. You know, wow. round its round its thing. It was that. It was that emaciated. Oh my God. Yeah. And where the where the rope had cut in so much and it had grown. That that cut it was awful. Um, there, there were some horrible things, you know, um, 
the pangolins with arms and legs that have been removed and you know lost limbs and um so did you have a moment in time where you know when the, you're putting these connecting these dots and then you realize that you, you you could actually have a way very bigger impact than what you originally thought you might be doing in this place or do you think you always had that that long vision to get involved with the legislation and and, and, and you know, not 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 get involved with that. But I mean, did you always have have a look, the, your eye on the much longer view? Or was, yeah. there, was there a moment you're like, oh, we're going to have to really change the way we're seeing this and step well, up? And I think first of all, when you work in a country <clears throat> like Malawi, and if you work in a field such as you know conservation and things, it's a very dynamic um, environment, and um, you. you constantly having to think on your feet and there's new problems and challenges that come up all the time so you, you definitely can't set a five-year plan and think you're going to have sales smoothing you need to you need to basically adapt and the longer while trust is very good at that adapting to needs and and coming up with sort of quick solutions to address those but certainly at the beginning one thing that was different i suppose from with me and kate when we were appointed by the board was that we had a a vision at the beginning, not knowing exactly what it was, but certainly a vision to build a wider environmental conservation related charity from the sanctuary, as opposed to just run a sanctuary. And it and it felt there was an opportunity there because it was based it's 180 hectares right in the centre of a yeah. capital city, mm. and therefore access to government uh, departments and unbelievable numbers of school kids. I think we end up at 20 odd thousand a year come through, you know. So there's let's this just let's just say it again. Like so, you've got this, you've got 180 hectares or, or is it acres? Hectares, yeah. <clears throat> right in the middle of the city, mm. and then you and then you've started to wait. Well, you haven't started, but you, it's now a place where tons of school children are coming through and learning about. Yeah, and and obviously there's the the rehab side, which is separate from that. You know, to make sure that those animals aren't disturbed and um and can be returned back to the world if if they can but there is obviously a whole area of beautiful woodland and uh, indigenous woodland and habitat and areas where we have guides and uh and educational events and the whole education um center and facilities and uh, you know amphitheaters and things where people can come and learn and engage in 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 nature and embrace themselves and walking trails it's a, it's a really beautiful site in in the middle of the city so um that was it that was the it was it felt fairly obvious that malawi didn't really have at the time an organization that was very progressive and at the forefront of conservation it seemed to be a little some of the organizations that were involved were quite specific in certain themes or had a kind of have to be on a don't want to be but quite a colonial feel about them as mm, well mm. and um you know uh so there was an opportunity there and it wasn't an opportunity to go and build a, a career because for years we were earning literally a hundred dollars each or something a month um at best but like um it was an opportunity to feel like, wow, you can. There was an opportunity here to have a real impact in this country because, within five minutes of flying in and looking over the country, you can see that there were challenges with deforestation and habitat issues and pollution, and 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 it didn't take long to realise that Malawi was Southern Africa's principal transit hub for wildlife trade, principal. trafficking, transit hub. So like a oh. depot for 
you know, uh, product from around the region coming in and then being distributed out. And Malawi was, you know, central to all of that. So therefore mm. had a really key role to play in that supply chain and an opportunity yeah. to disrupt that supply chain both it, up and down. It was partly because of its geographical location being in the middle of, a, of like three or four major, yeah. major countries, but also the fact that it had such such a crappy laws about people getting caught with with, with certain well certainly yeah it had it had laws that were um uh that were how do i say it they had they had laws which had a lot of issues so they could easily be challenged in court or interpreted um differently and uh, so they were weak in that regards and the enforcement of that law um particularly with wildlife crime was almost non-existent and that wasn't necessarily because there wasn't a desire from from the government agency responsible dmpw to to do that it was just a general um lack of awareness and understanding yeah. of how serious some of these issues are both in terms of the crime itself and the impact on nature and the impact on those animals but also on how important it is to you know protect those animals to protect those forests to ensure that in countries like malawi where so many millions of people are dependent on forests or climate-based agriculture. How important it is to protect those rivers, protect those forests, and protect those animals within it. Um, and so... So what did you do? Well, interestingly, one of the first things we did was try to, whilst there was stuff going on in the background about you know finding out more information about the certain types of trade and things that were happening... But was to raise awareness of the issue of of um, of wildlife crime and, and to, to to suggest. So we, Kate started and pulled together this really amazing sort of public awareness campaign, and brought in some support from I think it was at the time FCD, F, what's called now the FCDO, the British High Commission, and various things. Um, and and this campaign kicked off from there around 2012, you know, mm. 2013, and. Um, and has been sustained ever since to the extent that there's just endless media articles now uh, around nature and climate and conservation biodiversity and very much i think lwt with others but was very much at the center of putting nature which was never mentioned or conservation anywhere in the papers literally on the front page at times so um it became part of the public conscious that the these were real issues and and to a certain degree these are real serious crimes and then that would enable us to start approaching parliamentarians and decision makers around the possibility of strengthening the laws. Yeah. Just since you mentioned the media, mm. um, did, did, did um, social media play a big role in getting the word out there as well? Or was it more directly media? I mean, you know, we, now we live in a world where we all have to have a social media account. We all have to kind of be posting stuff every day and I follow the wild um the LWT and see that they're putting stuff out there but does, do you think that helps at all do you think there's it's giving much uh I asked the question based on the song of mine called algorithms and how they play a role in our life today mm-hmm. and we're used to it in you know thinking of it in terms of modern culture being texting our mates and yeah. this and that and stuff but you know in terms of there's also you know Peter Gabriel he started the um witness and and where where people could catch other people's crimes on with videotapes and stuff like mm-hmm. that back in the that's 90s. cool idea. yeah yeah and now that's kind of happening through social media as well 
Yeah. But I'm wondering if that that was ever relevant to what you guys did. So there was there was there is a component of of, of using um, you know digital um, campaign materials and and social media. But what's what was good about social media was 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 trying to gauge over time the public support for your cause. Yeah. So for example, when there was discussions that we were supporting early on about maybe putting a lot of the ivory stockpile out of economic use in Malawi, there was just utter outrage about why you would do that. And when maybe Hang on a second, just to, uh, to understand what you said, to 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 so, you, I didn't quite catch what you said there. So. Ivory stockpile. Uh, Malawi, like many um, African countries and other countries around the world, you know, have um, wildlife products that are, because of CITES and other international legal instruments, are illegal to trade mm. internationally without, right. well, to put it simply, I mean, there are ways. But anyway, so essentially these are then stored in, in stockpiles and kept and so there is a, a strong argument that um, it would be better on many levels, and there are other arguments against it, but to put those um, stockpiles out of economic use. And one way to do that is to destroy those stockpiles. So there was a very famous Kenyan burning of ivory, tons and tons and tons and tons of ivory, a few years ago. That, um, you can look up on Google and, and see all the very iconic images of these piles of ivory being burnt. Um, and Malawi was thinking about that actually way ahead of Kenya um, back in 2014. And um, you mean burning it before burning, it got out of the country? I mean burning it, yeah, burning it to destroy it to put it out of economic use, so it couldn't necessarily, as a symbol that you know they wouldn't tolerate trade. Yeah. And Malawi is a country extremely progressive and, and advanced in 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 how they've tackled illegal wildlife trade, and actually they're they're sort of pioneers within within southern africa and southern and eastern africa i would say so the the my point being about social media was that um when these things were being discussed as this you know trying to gauge public and political support there was outrage back in 2014 mm. absolute outrage as there was when people started being arrested for, say, trading ivory and going to prison for maybe a couple of years or whatever it was at the beginning, you know, people just didn't understand it. They thought it was an absolute disgrace and all the rest of it. And but for what reason? I mean, where were they? Because they didn't from? really understand, you know, the importance of the seriousness of wildlife crime, how it's connected to other serious crimes, yeah. other serious trades like guns and drugs and things at these high levels of corruption that destabilize society. Mm. You know, and also the importance of protecting that wildlife because what it represents, it represents that a forest has been destroyed or a river has been polluted or whatever it may be. So these things were not in a consciousness. They weren't in a, there's, there's nothing in primary schools. You know, there was nothing yeah. in primary schools. There was nothing in the media. Hence why these public awareness games and education became important objectives for our organisation and others. Um, but... The, the role of social media and algorithms and things that you're talking about is over time gauging that shift in what would be considered, I suppose, a social norm. So social norm at the beginning would be to very much say, what the hell are you bothering even caring about this issue? And we should be selling this and we should be doing this and we should be eating all these animals because in Malawi and Techewa, at least, the local language, Nyama, uh, Nyama, basically the, the, the word for animal is, is, is meat. 
they're, they're the same word. Oh, right, really? <laughs> so, um, yeah, changing that sort of mindset to, to a large extent, that exploitative, which, I mean, there is obviously sustainable reasons to consume and all of that stuff, but I'm saying there was a general perception that the natural world I'm not going to get into any religious con- context, but I've got my own feelings on it. This natural world is there to be used yeah. by man. And you know, maybe that's a Western religion influence yeah. onto various societies about the position of certain things in Christianity and stuff. But anyway, um, these things were tested before. And then a few years later, when you on social media, you get out and you and the whole shift in attitudes was amazing. You know, so the you support really, that you get. For yeah. it. So we use those to gauge public support for mm. campaigns, to get feedback on certain campaigns that were put out there, you, you know, and to gauge what support you got. And and obviously in time, what we'd see in our supporters is that, where it was originally a lot of expats or internationals, you know, very kindly like yourself and others. A lot more Malawians, a lot more national following us and supporting those causes, and that kind of thing is is great to see. You know, in terms so, of so you, you using did, social media to understand your audience is really important. Mm-hmm. Using that social media social, to understand yeah. your audience and tweet campaigns, yeah, you have a direct com- communication yeah. with yeah, their and you can see those arguments, and you can see it and it's yeah. uncensored, so you can see their feedback, and you have to understand why why they feel like that. So you actually created this, yeah, a paradigm shift within the country in a way, in terms of people's un- yeah, we, perspective, we, the way of outlook outlook on this. We definitely, we definitely helped to do that. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. We've played a very significant part in that with with other organisations, <coughs> but I would say we've we kind of really helped pioneer that. Yeah, yeah, cool. With in partnership with government, obviously. And and when you're talking, I mean, that's we can say that you've gone in there to to protect. That's that's your main objective is to try and protect the in terms of animals and and you know mm. flora and fauna. You're, you're trying to look at protecting what there is, what what the earth is given, as it were. Do you think when you're talking about being, uh, you know, the kind of attitudes you immediately get back? Are, are you? Do you think it's possible to be overprotective, to be over, to go in too hard or too strong? But also, is it? It, can we be overprotective with this kind of stuff? Do you think? Yeah, we can. Um, and because uh, there's got to be a there's moment. A, there's a go. there's a whole. I mean, it, it obviously, it's a very complex. Um, a, I mean, it's a good question. It's a very complex thing to think through, but it depends a lot on your um, on your own personal ethics and your morals and and various things and and what you feel are our priorities now. Take an individual. Someone might ha- might feel that every individual animal, uh, you know, as should be, should never be suffering cruelty. I think I personally I agree with that. You know, yeah. there shouldn't be um, apparent cruelty on on animals and things. And others others don't. Others have other priorities. Wildlife Trust started off and still does amazing work on individual animal level, you know, protecting its welfare. And that's brilliant. Me as an ecologist and a conservation, I've always had a, a tendency to lean towards trying to solve those bigger sort of species or habitat level yeah. issues. And in terms of can we go over the top with that protection, I, I think there is an argument you definitely can. If you're, for example, on the enforcement side, if you're too heavy-handed and maybe a laws toughened and then it's enforced to such an extreme that um, there are perceived injustices in that 
you know maybe in sentencing mm. or your sentencing is leading to um, breaking up um, families and, and accelerating poverty these are really important considerations yeah. to take and so our work has never been one to focus on sort of lower level supply chain when we're working on helping to counter illegal wildlife trade the programs that we initiate are focused to support government tackling with sort of corruption and higher level um, operators so that the drivers are more to do with power and influence and greed and money than they are to do with sustenance and energy and day-to-day living and then also we we've campaigned and brought in lots of legal tools and things to to make sure that although for example maybe the sentencing in under an act in a court is deterrent but it's not counterproductive by being too extreme that's proportionate mm. to bringing in things like sentencing guidelines and training for judicial um, officers and prosecutors and all those kind of things to try and ensure that what you're not doing is sending someone that might go and wants a poacher of guapi a diker um, a little small antelope and he's going to prison for 10 years and that's not the objective of this yeah. but someone that's potentially head of an organized crime network that's transporting tons of ivory from across the region out of Malawi it's appropriate that they do go to prison for a longer period of time potentially so just give us a little example of the, the, the laws you changed uh, in Malawi and how that's affected you know what what that led to in terms of the big stories in terms of you know um well we helped strengthen first of all the wildlife act and you know and uh the main wildlife act and and and, and got rid of some of those anomalies and in uh, inconsistencies and we also strengthened the penalty section and it went you know from a fairly weak act into something which potentially you know if you committed one of the most serious crimes up to 30 years in prison which is now i think one of the strongest that's what it is now it wasn't yeah before it was what uh, it was uh, it was an option of a fine and 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 or a custodial sentence so often they were just fines and the most common sentence that was passed in the courts if you have found trafficking ivory or rhinos it was we found when we did a lot of research and looked at all the court cases it was a 40 dollar fine Whoa. so you literally would plead guilty yeah pay the fine and go home for tea and could you take the could you take the the ivory home would they no well they would know. confiscate would go into the stockpile but you know yeah. um, we talked about earlier but ultimately there was That's absolutely right. no deterrence whatsoever um so now it's 30 years and and so there is you know there, I'm not going to go into it we've actually done a report on the deterrence impact of our work with various universities and um, yeah there is a, a genuine deterrent effect um, in certain um, certain uh, in, in certain groups yeah. if you do certain things like tackling higher level um, arresting and, 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 and potentially imprisoning but particularly arresting higher level um, sort of more dangerous or perceived or bigger players that that tends to have a deterrent impact it seems when government do that down that supply chain um and so you know it is important that's led to the arrests of big ivory and run hill traffickers in malawi and their imprisonment has led they're to, not from malawi though are they? no they're often foreign nationals maybe yeah. you know 
Asian nationals, often, unfortunately, I don't want to name countries, but often Chinese. But um, the the uh, the reality is that, you know, um, because Malawi is in this transit country and that, and that ivory is coming from all these other countries, from Mozambique and Zambia and Tanzania as well as itself, it has an impact on helping protect all of those populations of those animals and mm. therefore the habitats that they help sustain as part of natural ecosystems um, in those respective countries and within Malawi. So Malawi's populations of these animals not just thanks to our work, but other people that are doing actual protected area management in the country as well. You know, but that collective improvement has meant that we're one of the few countries where we have increasing populations now of these iconic species, which is really exciting. Yeah, really cool. that's great. It's amazing. Um, yeah. But when you, when I'm like, I mean, so you've been really like uh, active and central in having major laws changed and then being... Be, I don't want to say responsible, but being the figurehead, as it were, for you know having people put away and in, in prison and all that sort of stuff. That must put a lot of a, that must have when you lived there. Put a lot of attention on on you and and being. I mean, being a family, being a family man. Now you and Kate have a family. You yeah. had your first son there, I think. Yeah, yeah. and then you've got two kids like me. Did you ever worry about that? Was that ever a concern for you both? Yeah, yeah, it was a concern. And like your own protection for yourselves. Yeah, so yeah, it, it was. Speaking protection. It, it was a concern, it has been a concern, and yeah. um, I have friends who have who have lost their lives doing similar work, and um, and I suppose the work of an activist, environmental activist, is very dangerous, actually. You know, yeah. um, big business doesn't like it, big criminal gangs don't like it, um, because you end up impacting, you know, their their incomes. Um, obviously, you know, we were quite public in in our support of of uh, of the government agencies that are doing this work, and um, and we're quite influential in training and building capacity in those offices, and we're quite public in the court system, um, and so that that led to. Uh, yeah, it led to quite significant attention, and it's the primary reason why we now run the organisation from the UK. Yeah, right. Yeah, because because it was not so safe to live. Yeah, there. Yeah, it wasn't so. And safe. you lived there for how many years? Lived there from two thousand and uh, late two thousand eight, I think it was early two thousand and nine through to oh, it was ten years, May twenty nineteen. Right. Yeah, and it was just before COVID that you came back. It was a year before COVID. Yeah. Oh, yeah so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so um, there's a song of mine called Exile, as I mentioned before. And it's, you know, I live in France. I'm I'm living as a, a self-exiled person. Mm. Um, you were, you were, I think, I think, I mean, I, when I went and visited you both, I had the impression that you, in, in your mind at that point in time, which was 2013, I think it was. Yeah. You were really, there was no, there was no conversation about coming home. I mean, you were really loving living. No, there. and we were. We wouldn't have come home. We were very happy in Malawi, and um, you know, a bit like you at times, particularly at the beginning, you might have felt. And you, you always. It's very hard to integrate completely into a new culture, as you, as I'm sure you know. And language yeah. is really important to the for that. Absolutely. But, but Malawi is a very welcoming country, 
overall and um the work was just you know very rewarding and um you could you could see the impact of it and and, and unlike in the UK and other places you were able to i suppose move within areas of influence easier you could influence change there's no way i could go and change a law in the uk yeah um or have dinner with a president or something like that but mm. which you have done in malawi many, in malawi yeah. yeah but you know the the um the reality is that it, it did feel at home i probably felt exiled towards the end because my personal restrict my personal movement was more restricted by some of the issues that we just touched upon and so at times i felt like i was imprisoned in my own home in mm. malawi and and sort of covid before covid <laughs> before yeah i had a lockdown before before the lockdowns was even fashionable for how long you couldn't go out uh at night for a while well over a year yeah, a year months yeah you can go out at night i used to do stuff but very it was it was recommended not to do so yeah um so, oh, so, so it was pretty serious your the, the 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 kind of the risk you you could be taking by it it was yeah um and it it accumulated after government had made some arrests of some fairly high profile long standing foreign traffickers ivory rhino horn traffickers in in the country and it particularly peaked and that that happened in may twenty nineteen and it, it sort of peaked. So by the end of that month, we were. It was it was particularly challenging, and we were in a situation where we had to we had to leave the country. Yeah, which must have been really hard because you've also not only have you built up all that the whole foundation, the trust, and everything, but you've also had your kids there as well. So you well, know, our life was there, them. and and our home was where we lived in Malawi. That was where we had our first kids. Is where and, and also all the staff and everything we built up, not from scratch, because some of that sanctuary work had been done and the trustees and the previous manager had done a good foundation to get things moving but it very much felt like the wider organisation that, that Kate and I had developed with all of our amazing team obviously but basically that was our baby and we were leaving it and at that time we obviously had the intention we were going to go back but we didn't know when and, and then Covid happened and all, and it felt desperate and funny enough, out of that tragic of COVID, and we, we, you know, a lot of our funding is private fund funders, and suddenly they were worried about the values of their stocks and shares, and so I think at one point when COVID hit, for example, I think our income, which is, I think we lost about three million dollars or something in about forty-eight hours, seventy-two hours. What? They were like, "Oh, we don't think we can give you this. We don't. We can give you that. We don't give you that." So. And we had to, so I had to think totally on our feet. Depend on that. Yeah, but we, it made us diversify and think and go to other people and and be creative how we did it. And we came through it, and we actually had a really good year financially, funnily enough, and mm. kept all our staff and kept them all employed. And with the in, with the kick on of Zoom and I probably can't, you know, but you know all the sort yeah, of yeah. platforms and TeamView. Suddenly, the world meant that you could run something yeah. remotely, and so it enabled us to still be able to have be as not as effective but almost as effective 
And the organisation had to adjust to that and adjust to that change. Which is probably really difficult. Difficult, but a good thing. But in the, the whole run. world was doing it at the same time. Yeah, so yeah. actually, it wasn't as challenging as it would have been if the rest of the world wasn't doing it at the same time. So we were kind of lucky in that regards. And it felt that at one point we were going to lose our, lose our home, lose our friends, lose the baby that we built up, the organisation and the passion and the country. But we slowly realised that actually we, although we would lose our home and we'd lose you know, our physical home, we could still go backwards and forwards once COVID was over. And, uh, but we could still retain our jobs and yeah. things that we love and, and, and try to do what we can to, to steer the organisation in the right way. Yeah. So that was, that was a bonus, Brucey bonus. Brucey bonus, mate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, nice. Um, you're, you know, I know you as a friend of mine, someone who, who can be in the middle of a, a sort of shitstorm and a, a difficult situation and be and remain quite calm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we we have we've only skated on the surface of of, of the difficult times that you've been through and 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 how and, and what you've done. But what do you think the hardest moment was in that entire period in in Malawi? What's the, what's been the most um, the biggest storm you had to face? I and suppose there's a, there's been a few, but one of the biggest ones was when I actually got the job and realised that I was in charge of 220 wild animals and had no idea how to look after them. <laughs> <laughs> got no veterinary experience whatsoever. Got no husband whatsoever. So again, I mean, at one point I was having to dart baboons with a with a dart gun to try and not. So anyway, thinking of your feet growing. It's finished that. Thought. Yeah, I mean, dart running baboons. around, dart a baboon that needed some you know, one of my animal cats. Ah, oh, boss, you know, this baboon. And you're like, well, Jesus Christ, you know, and then had to go up there and and try and pull baboon. I, mean, I actually got it right up with a blowpipe right on its ass. It was it was a good shot, <laughs> but um, very quickly employed people to do that. Um, I see you were right in the deep end. Yeah, because you, you were basically... Yeah, kind of, I mean, like, we came, oh, yeah, we got the job. Oh, shit, we got like 45 staff and 220 animals and it's half finished and what the hell are we doing? Um, so that was a sort of... Uh, but that's crazy. A eureka yeah. moment of like, right, yeah. be careful what you wish for because we're kind of fucked now. We've got to get this done. There's literally lives and animals and international people watching us. It's like, this could be a major cock-up. Oh, could go right. either way. Yeah. But it didn't. It went the right way because we got the sense to delegate things that we're not very good at. So, because so, I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of surprised that the answer to that question is going so far back uh, in time relating, like, you know, saying that, so when you got the job, that's the biggest storm that you went through, and and you've just gone through this whole thing of telling me about you know well, getting like litigate, uh, 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 getting um. The hardest thing we did was probably changing the law. I, I just cannot tell you how hard that was. It uh, was just yeah, I mean, I such was... a complicated thing to do. There was a moment when I was in a bit of trouble live on TV in Parliament, and um, I was allowed the, the members of parliament were, were were it was parliament was live and all the all the members were were in in the in the chambers and because they were going to try and pass it was suggested my the act that we helped lead was going to get passed someone very kindly in one of the parliamentary committees said i'll get you access into the viewing thing and you can watch it 
which you're not really meant to do, but it was really kind. But because I realised this was might be a historic moment and it mm. was such a, a difficult thing to try and do, I mean, honestly, the the process itself and then trying to combat some of the corruption and, and other stuff, it's just, it was, it, honestly, it was exhausting. But anyway, um, I decided I might just film the moment when it passed, which was a mistake because I was in Parliament and you're not allowed to film. And mm. then soon one of the MPs, this is all going out on live TV, just stood up and went, speaker uh there's a gentleman up there filming and then everyone everyone in parliament looked up all the tv cameras sort of followed up <laughs> so i was on national tv having filmed it and i said oh sorry and then had to sit there and then the speaker said right that's illegal deal with it and i just watched the security people who were down in the chamber go dun, 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 dun. i could almost imagine the sound of coming up the steps do, 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 do. and then i was escorted out so that was a bit of a at that moment i thought i was well you were, you it wasn't were, a pickle but it was a very embarrassing mm. situation and uh especially as it was, a, it was a huge moment for you as well yeah like, so really I, I i was ego and thinking oh yeah i could show my son this one day which i've probably lost it now you know you take pictures on the phone and video on the phone never, look, know, the, again. never look again so um anyway and then there's been yeah oh god honestly in malawi every i wish kate was here because we could probably list it out just endless ones We've been in car chases. Um, we've had um, buildings burned down and we've had to put it out. We've had dangerous animals escape. We had a baboon once uh, escape and run around the local hospital in the long way. And we had to, it was running wild in the in the wards. And we had to go and, and dart, dart it. Did anybody and get hurt? And catch it. <laughs> no. But, you know, just Sunday, got a phone call. Baboons, all right, where is it? Oh, it's in the hospital, escaped, <laughs> got out of the perimeter fence, out of the enclosure, out of another fence, out of the perimeter fence, <laughs> ran across the thing, is now in the middle of the major general hospital in the city, just running around the wards going nuts and everyone's screaming and going ballistic and basically all the press are coming down, you're going to be ridiculed. So there was that. Um, I mean, there's loads, honestly. Every That's what's so addictive because every day there was some borderline disaster or cock up but some amazing people that would would you know would would, would solve it and there was always and and progress been made i mean it sounds like it's a calamity it's not a calamity it's an amazing organization but yeah there's there's no, always yeah, crazy things going no, on you're dealing with a lot of people you're dealing with a lot of animals yeah you're dealing with a lot of politicians as well now i mean at that point yeah, yeah i mean i've had some really hairy things you know serious robberies and um yeah, there's, there's been some, some very dark moments as well. But, you know, overall, um, as I said, uh, life less organary, that's the kind of thing it kept you kept you going. But most importantly, because you could see progress. Yeah. You know, and that's, ev that's ev everyone, not everyone has that luxury, I suppose, but everyone, you know, if everyone did have that luxury to see the impact and the progress that their their contributions to whatever they're doing is making then mm. that's really rewarding and so from a selfish point of view it's quite addictive in that regards you yeah because you can see the fruits of your labor so to speak of course but when you yeah. know your labors are actually affecting people and animals in a positive way it's can only it's uh it's not really so negative uh, selfish it's just a, a cyclic positive cyclic affair you know mm. it's a win-win okay so last question i ask everyone is 
based on the song called um, Letter From My Future Self, where I imagine myself in his 80s writing me a letter today. And um, the, the song is talking about what I'd say to myself as mm. a kind of means of advice or anything that I'd want to say. Um, if you can just for a second imagine yourself in your 80s sitting down to write Johnny today a letter or Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, that's my Jonathan. mother. I don't think you've ever called me I've Jonathan. Never called you Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, what would what would what would he say? Um, as advice, I think make sure that you pause long enough to really take stock of some of your achievements as you go along that journey, because. I think too often we've just moved and moved and moved and moved and moved forwards and forwards and constantly moving to try and reach a, I suppose, a a goal that, and that goal always shifted. We attained it and then we moved it and then we moved it and then we moved it. And in a way, um, it would have been nice and it's nice now to to sit and, and really appreciate. It. So I think it would have, we would have been kinder to ourselves almost at times. Um, worked ourselves into into exhaustion and constantly going. I don't know if, if that's coming across yeah. well, but just make sure that you you interject times of reflection to appreciate. What, you, what you've achieved and what you're trying to achieve and then also to get a perspective that um, you must work with others you can't do everything yourself you have to basically work with others and ensure that you really understand your your motivations and your drivers and that those motiva- motivations and drivers may change with time for example now it's as important to me, for me, to be a good father and a partner to Kate as it is to save Malawi's wildlife. And I need to ensure that I give equal time or as much, you know, as much equal time, thought space, you know, to doing that. And um, I suppose this is a roundabout way of, so the, the pause thing and then also to make sure that... Um, what thing? Well, the what, I was, what I was just saying about making sure that you pause, oh, pause, yeah. you take the time to stop and reflect and and appreciate what you've achieved, but learn from that and, and and make sure that you can improve or whatever it may be. And then and then the other thing is to just ensure that uh, you have time in your life for something else other than just work, even if you love it. Mm-hmm. Because it can be all-encompassing and you realise before you know it, you're 43, 44 as you are, mm. time has flown. And although I absolutely love what I do, I also, you know, love watching my son play football or being around. So yeah. um, be a little bit kinder to yourself. Do you think you're taking heed of this advice at the moment? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, that... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think so. Still work extremely hard. Still very passionate about it. But um, 
But you're talking about, you're not necessarily talking about quitting or stopping or anything like that. You're just talking about taking moments to reflect. and I'm taking moments moments to reflect, you know. Which is, I think, it's really intelligent because we we can't just stop. No, and I I wouldn't stop. You can't, if you're like you with your music, Charlie, you're just not going to stop. You're not going to not play music, even mm. if you know your music doesn't sell. You're still going to yeah. make music, or even if it means I'm going to be touring in the way from a family. For, yeah, you know, half the year, whatever it is, you make those sacrifices exactly. Um, so you're going to do that. But um, I suppose what I'm what I'm trying to say is to ensure that you you get that balance. You get that balance right when. Um, how do I say it? I mean, we probably need to do this bit again, mm. to be honest. But no, you've said it. You've said it. It yeah. makes total sense. It's just about, like, yeah. To be, you, know, you know, there's there's always some, something, since I've written this album and we've been talking, like, meandering through the topics of the songs, one, one thing, that, one question that came up a lot for me when I started then, uh, finished the art, making the record and, and, and started touring and stuff like that, was how do I find that balance between... Uh, keeping staying passionate for what I do, and um, um, but finding that finding the the place uh, where I can let go of it as well, you know, like putting everything I've got into what I do when I do it, mm-hmm. but not putting all my eggs in one basket so much so that I, I, then I'm just spent. Yeah, well, that, that's that's exactly the point. You have to, if you, it's one of the points. If you don't be a little bit kinder to yourself and you don't find that room then you'll burn you burn out yeah. and if you're passionate about something so i always be working in environmental quarters i always have a passion for malawi i always you know love the long wildlife trust and i will work as hard as i can to deliver what all those things need from me but if you do it relentlessly without being kind to yourself and thinking god you know just reflect on that for a little bit before we move to the next one, or let's let's try and also introduce a little bit of balance for well-being, or yeah. a little bit of time outside. You need that in order to be more effective, more productive. Maybe it's just as you get older. Certainly, at the start up at the beginning in your tw- late twenties, early thirties, maybe you got more energy. Maybe I'm just an old fogey. But the point is, kids can change things. Kids a bit. can change <laughs> things, all that sort of stuff. But you know, it is important, I think, to. To make sure that um, your goals and ambitions change equally, with, yeah, with how your life evolves, proportion to how your life evolves. I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like um, it's letting go without giving up. You know, you can't give up the fight, but you want to let you want to be able to let go and actually just appreciate yourself a bit and the life that you've chosen as well all at the same time and if you, i think it's, a, it's like wa- being able to waver between those two you know it's like a sorry to sound like a japanese proverb but you know like a grass in the wind you know you, you sort of at one moment you're in the sun another moment you're out of the sun and and you and you waver between those two yeah moments. i think i think it's exhausting like it is if you're making four albums five albums six albums if you're doing tours like you're doing now on a, you know 100 tours in 200 days or something but like maybe even less days but yeah you know, it can be exhausting and if you're going to sustain that level of productivity exactly. for the cause because yeah. of something you're passionate about mm. and i've been ever since i was tiny that all i cared about was nature really yeah. and um you need 
to be kinder to yourself for the long game and to totally. take the fight against maybe suffering, you know, whatever the next chapter is, you know, and I hope that it doesn't end with LWT, but ultimately there are many, many causes that need, and, and there are very few environmentalists and we need to mm. take the ball by the horns, but to do that, um, you've got to stay, you can't you, burn out. You can't burn out. Yeah. yeah. And so if I was looking back on myself, there were moments where I felt burnt out. I felt distressed and I was probably less effective or I judged myself, you know, badly because I hadn't achieved something or hadn't achieved it as quick as I thought I would or it, it had been counterproductive in some way. And the immediate response back then was to, to constantly tackle one thing like that. And it was great for productivity, but it actually, not only in myself, led to um, a few health challenges, and, 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 and but it bred a culture in LWT that, of other staff that would do that because they were just so passionate and that was the energy that came off from it yeah. and they had burnout you know yeah, they, you know, yeah it all so, feeds down and actually down. it wasn't a sustainable culture yeah. so we had to change that a little bit That's and really COVID almost took it one way that I wasn't happy with you know it was like hang on guys you're just being lazy as shit here you know <laughs> this yeah. needs to go but ultimately the, the, you know that balance had to be reached yeah. so if the question was about you know the long while I've trusted thought it was or career that that would be what I'd be telling to myself is um yeah anyway long-winded waffly answer to your question it was actually not well it was not at all it's just that I kept asking questions off the back of your answer mm. so don't worry but anyway it was a good chat okay cool. thanks thanks for good having a chat. I hope I hope the uh the album sells millions and millions <laughs> that way I'll never burn out or maybe <laughs> I will no, actually it always gets more busy when, I, when, the, yeah. when they sell more that's, let's, hope they let's hope it never sells so I don't burn out no but then you'll constantly have to be working to get the million 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 selling album I whatever you call what it is it, is it platinum and platinum plat what, what is the top thing now? diamond diamond what yeah. do you have to get to get a diamond depends on the country Oh really? Yeah. What's the hardest one? America. I, I think I think diamond is the biggest. Uh, America must be around. Pff, I haven't got a clue actually. I think it's two hundred. I, I mean, these days it's it doesn't even really apply because no one buys records. Mm. So the records nick them off streaming sites. It's all streaming, yeah. So no one's paying. So, but it's but now apparently streaming. I mean, certainly digital sales count into digital and physical sales count yeah. into one pot. It's so low. I mean, when I started first first album, it was like Diamond would have been I don't know five hundred thousand, wow. and now I think I think that's great. Five hundred, <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably. Yeah, yeah. You'll get you'll get platinum at ten. Be great. You finally got 10. it. You keep hanging in here, mate. You you'll finally get that gold <laughs> that platinum thing to put on, disc to put on the wall. Yeah. Just don't just cover up the date. Twenty twenty six. It was when it was fifty. Yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs>